Welcome to Hormone Health Podcast, brought to you by Georgia Hartman and Chloe Sheehan. This podcast is an extension of Hormone Health Studio, which is our naturopathic clinic based here in Newcastle and online. We're just two naturopaths who love a laugh, coffee, croissants, and conversations about real people with real health concerns. Nothing's off limits. We're here to educate you on what's happening in your body, share emerging research, and debunk buried health misconceptions. So sit back and let us do the talking. we are talking all about normal period pain or common period pain versus pelvic pain such as endometriosis. Something that we get questions from our clients about what is considered common period pain versus when should I actually go and investigate my pain a little bit further? Could it be something like endometriosis or adenomyosis? I'm so excited for you to share your journey in amongst this, Chloe, because a lot of the testing and symptoms we'll be talking about, all of our listeners are just going to have a really good understanding of your pelvis and your experience with this journey yeah because I I feel like I've done it all I've done all of those investigations I've always questioned whether or not I had normal or common period pain or did I have endometriosis because for people who may have heard me say this before I had like 11 out of 10 period pain I went through everything I had a laparoscopy so just another one of my journeys and add it to the add it to my book of life your list of surgeries But before we talk about that, let's talk about our fundraiser. Did you have fun? I had fun. I had a lot of fun. I was excited and anxious and pre-party jitters. But once everyone started arriving, I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that we put this on and we orchestrated this and people wanted to come to our party. I know. I know. And everyone was in pink and it was it was just so much fun and I think the good thing about having it at an event uh, at an event space like Earth Brothers was that we didn't have to do much at all like everything was set up the food was taken care of and it was amazing did you have the pork belly sure had I, I sure oh, pork, did pork belly was amazing I did have the meatballs but I regretted it because I just felt like I smelled like a big meatball all night um <laughs> and I think it was equal parts balanced of talking about the emotional aspect of pregnancy loss and also enjoying everyone's company as well. Uh, As people may have seen, I spoke. Uh, My grandma also spoke too. And she she had a really interesting story. Um, She experienced a stillbirth when she was in her late 20s. That was her third pregnancy. And this was when she was explaining that she was away on holidays with um, her partner, my grandpa, and um, her children, my mum and my uncle, and they were sort of like in this small little coastal town. And she started to bleed quite a lot. And sorry, before I go into this, um, yeah, there will be some triggering conversations. So jump to a few minutes forward if you if you don't want to listen to this. Um, but she was explaining that she had to get my grandpa to go and call a payphone and try to yeah. decipher. I think she called it a phone box, had to go and find a, a phone, phone box. box and decipher where the hell they were. You know, imagine trying to find coins or money to pay for that call whilst all of this she was bleeding. She got to Gosford Hospital 
And unfortunately, there she um, experienced a stillbirth. And what was really heartbreaking was the fact that throughout that time, she, no one communicated with her. No one communicated with her about how she was feeling, what was going on. No one want no one gave her the option to see her baby to talk about its gender to discuss what will happen to the baby and although at the time she's basically you know trying to survive this whole ordeal she then has to process the aftermath of that it was emotional it was wasn't it yeah and so I think the whole point of us getting her to speak was to talk about how much this has changed in terms of how we're talking about loss and Mm -hmm. how a lot has changed, although sometimes it still feels like we're years and years behind, a lot has changed. And so she really recognised that and she wanted to say thank you that we were raising awareness about this and we're bringing together this community of people to break that stigma. Um, And something so sweet that she said as well is that through this whole ordeal, although she had experienced loss, it had helped her grow her bond or relationship with me through the collective experience of loss, which that was so sweet to hear. I saw your head throw back and you were trying to like not burst out into tears when she said that. It was like, grandma, you could have like, it could have been a warning, you know, just FYI, this is what I'm going to say. Here's your tissue. I know. I it, that got everyone that comment. Yeah, she's a little darling. How old is she? Who knows? Honestly, she <laughs> looks amazing. Yeah. And I, she I, was talking about this stillbirth from 60 plus years ago. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's incredible. She's an incredible woman. So hearing um no matter what age you are or what generation you're from Mm. this is something that we're collectively experiencing and so um yeah pretty pretty full-on topic but I'm so glad that we were able to hold space for that yeah and I think it was delivered well like I think it was enough of um you know people sharing their experiences and we heard from you obviously and we heard from your grandma and we heard from Chloe Fisher and we heard from Amanda from the Pink Elephants and it was it was a nice amount of stories and holding space for that as well as fun room for fun room for connection room for dancing your mum if anyone has seen any of the reels we've posted on Instagram, I didn't know that your mum could dance, would have loved a little warning for that. I would have got well around it. I would have made T-shirts, I think. Um, but it was just, yeah, so fun. Yeah, and and I think the part or the reason why we wanted to do that is because I know myself there has been throughout this, you know, so far two-year journey so many times where I have been like okay I'm not going to drink or maybe I'm not going to go to that social event because there's going to be pregnant people there or you restrict your social experience due to your your being currently in that trying to conceive or also dealing with grief and so abling or making a space for people to have fun let their hair down whether they're drinking or not it's not like they can just enjoy music and those things because grief totally robs that. Mm, absolutely. Well said. No, it was great. Thank you so much for 
pretty much putting it together. And thank you for the disco ball. Uh, that was great. Though I did get wind that it was meant to turn, but they couldn't figure out the electricity. No, they couldn't put a, a motor up there or, yeah. What? Then I don't want it. <laughs> Next time. Next time. No, it was great. It was great. So today we're going to talk all about period pain and pelvic pain and we're going to really dive into the difference between you know what might be normal when you get your period and what requires further questioning and further investigation because we see this quite a bit in clinical practice. When we talk about period pain maybe we'll start with talking about primary dysmenorrhea and what this means is when you experience pain in your lower pelvis or your back and it's quite mild cramping you can still feel something but it doesn't stop you from doing your day-to-day activities you might experience pain for the first day or two of when you get your menstrual bleed but it shouldn't stop you you shouldn't be bent over vomiting or feeling like you have to call in sick from work or necessarily even have to take anything maybe you do but it's nothing that stops you in your day-to-day this is what we call primary dysmenorrhea right yeah and uh, what we like if I can say that about common period pain is that it's pretty responsive and so a few tweaks you know, simple supplements, increasing exercise, usually within the first couple of months, people do start to notice quite an improvement with these symptoms. Yeah, because essentially what period pain is, is, well, it's caused by the release of prostaglandins. And so there's so many things we can do to support that or reduce that inflammatory response so that we can manage pain. But when we talk about more chronic pain, such as that with endometriosis or adenomyosis, and these might be terms that are new to you if you're listening, um, or you might be experiencing these conditions and know too well the symptoms. But Chloe, maybe let's start by talking about endo and what that is and the types of symptoms that you can experience. Yeah, and so just to clarify for our listeners, anytime a word has osis at the end, it means inflammation. And so that first part of the word is going to usually be where it's located. So endo, and then although endometriosis is not just in the uterus, it can be found all throughout the body, it's saying that it is a chronic inflammatory condition. And so this, especially with endometriosis, is where tissues similar to the lining of the uterus are found in other places around the body, such as the fallopian tubes or the ovaries. Um, Interestingly, it can be, you know, it can migrate as far as the diaphragm. Um, And so with endometriosis, we know that it predominantly affects people, it predominantly affects women or people assigned female at birth around one in nine which is just a staggering statistic. Although what's interesting is that it has also been found in males. That blows my mind. Yeah. So we're dealing with a really complex inflammatory immunorelated condition. And so, you know, when we're sort of thinking about endometriosis, we've also got to think about symptoms that aren't just related to 
period pain. Mm. What's interesting is that a lot of symptoms or maybe one of the most common symptoms that people with adenomyosis or endometriosis experience is bloating. Mm -hmm. Endobelly. Endobelly, exactly. And then we're also thinking about irregular bowel movements because some studies actually show that up to 50% of people with endo also have IBS. So, you know, you hear and we hear a lot of people who have endometriosis, but they're more likely to go and see a gastroenterologist before they go and see a gyno um, because of there's such strong correlation with their gut symptoms presenting as well as, as period pain symptoms too. People I read also- one, sorry, Chloe, I read one study that said that women with endo can be diagnosed with IBS a good 10 years before they get a proper diagnosis of endo because of the gut symptoms. Mm, and colonoscopies and other things are coming back normal, except they're still experiencing these symptoms. And mm. so, you know, I was even saying to a client this morning, when you think about what's inside your abdominal cavity, you've got a uterus the size of a pear, you've got meters upon meters of large intestines and small intestines. When you think if there's inflammation coming from that uterus, there's going to be an impact on the bowels as well because it's just so smushed together. That's such a good visual, visual, actually. Yeah, no, no, but it is. You can really picture it. It makes so much sense when, I don't know, particularly for visual learners. Yeah, me. I hope no one's eating sausages at the moment. Chloe just comes out with this thing of sausages. So here's your large intestine. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, you know, a lot of people can't actually envision what the size of the uterus may be like or what that looks like and how much is so tightly compacted there. Um, Other symptoms of endo is going to be pain with or after intercourse, fatigue, low iron, heavy painful thighs, even things like acne. You're dealing with inflammation. You're dealing with you know, immune activation. So that may be an exacerbation of already diagnosed conditions. Yeah, and this is the thing, isn't it, is that whenever you hear the word endometriosis, you think pain. You think, yeah, you you think like, like where, if for anyone that's listened to our sister's episode where we interviewed Chloe's sister but also my sister who has endo and a really big journey with endo, the symptoms she experienced were the, the classic chronic inflammatory, chronic pain symptoms where, you know, the week before your period, there's big PMS symptoms. You could even experience anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, like it can get really intense. The week of your period, you know, you're bent over vomiting, you know, you've got boils on your belly because the hot water bottle can't get hot enough and it bursts and uh, you can't leave your bed. And then the week after, you're so exhausted from the last two weeks and then you get one good week and then the whole thing starts again. So often when we think about endometriosis, those are the, that's the type of picture that people often think about. But as you say, it could be something as seemingly insignificant as chronic bloating that is mm-hmm. not improving with dietary changes or you know changing your lifestyle or managing stress or whatever it is that could be affecting your gut health that could actually be endometriosis growing on the bowel. Exactly. And it it will grow anywhere. It's as resilient as mold. Um, And so, you know, it's it's one of those things that when it is given the right environment, it will flourish. 
Um, and so that's a really big thing to think about with our clients. And so not to make this any more confusing than it should be, but the complexity of something like endometriosis is that it can also be silent, mm. which is so frustrating because, you know, when you think about these things, it's like we're, we're naming some really big symptoms that are not just around the period. It can be all throughout the cycle. However, some people can experience no symptoms and only experience infertility or when they try to fall pregnant, they're unable to. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's quite individualized and depending on what comes up for you, what's your normal, what are you used to? But the the main sort of three or four things that we think about when someone comes in with endometriosis is a few sort of action stages such as counteracting inflammation supporting hormonal balances such as you know unopposed estrogen that estrogen is going to be responsible or, or initiate helping that endo grow we also need to think about supporting gut dysfunction and then also how is your environment either positively or negatively influencing your current state um, such as exposure to xenoestrogens etc yeah and maybe we should break those down for people that are like what are you talking about when you say xenoestrogen but if we think about counteracting inflammation there are so many things that increase inflammation something as simple as stress increases inflammation or eating foods that you're sensitive to causes inflammation not or eating. not getting enough sleep not eating causes inflammation um there are many, many factors that contribute to an inflammatory state in the body. And so a big part of our job is to figure out what are those factors and how can we optimize them to help reduce inflammation in the body? Something when we're talking about supporting hormonal balance is why is there unopposed estrogen? What is going on there? Such as, are you getting an influence from your environment? Um, you know, different chemicals or fragrances that you're using. Um, and then supporting progesterone, which helps to balance out estrogen. Um, like you said, hormones aren't, you know, when you're dealing with inflammation, it's there's so many factors here. And when we're talking about hormones, it's not just estrogen and progesterone, it's stress hormones as well, which you mentioned. Yeah, and I think just on talking about estrogen, because we know that endometriosis is an inflammatory condition driven by estrogen. When we're trying to get excess estrogen out of the body, we first have to think about how estrogen is metabolized. And I'm not sure if I've shared this before on the podcast on. or whether it's just in my brain because I say it five times a day in clinics, but estrogen, but I feel like I need a bit of a backing song to this. Um, estrogen first goes to the liver and it attaches to a little molecule called conjugation. And then that conjugated estrogen moves to the bowel and is excreted out of the stool. That's nice, healthy estrogen metabolism. But what often happens is that there's too big of a load on the liver, whether you're drinking alcohol, exposed to cigarette smoke, um, or vaping or exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals or heavy metals in the environment or you're dehydrated, whatever's happening with the liver and or if there's something happening in the gut and this is the tricky thing with endo is that there's often a lot of gut symptoms. You're bloated, you have fluctuations between constipation, diarrhea, you have gut pain potentially, whatever the gut symptom may be. 
if there's anything going on in the liver and or the gut, then rather than that estrogen being excreted nicely out of the stool, it becomes deconjugated, reactivated, reabsorbed into the bloodstream, increasing estrogen levels even more. The more estrogen we have, the more potential this disease has to grow and flourish and cause havoc in the body. It's almost, it's this vicious cycle. And, you know, genetics also play a role in that as well and how we metabolize our estrogen. Um, but you were saying that if it's not excreted properly, then it's reabsorbed. And the one way that we can help excrete and support estrogen detoxification is through regular bowel movements. And so, you know, I was thinking before, I was like, how can I explain that? And I was like, um, it's no, sort of you were like, like, how can I, how can I include Pufuria into this conversation? <laughs> I was thinking like, it's sort of like um, a rubbish truck. And then I was thinking like dump truck. And isn't that what people say about their like butts as well? It's like back that truck up. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, but that <laughs> um, sounds like a party I don't lyric. You do. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Um, back up that dump truck um and so <laughs> so I think you know as as when someone comes in talking about endometriosis a, a really basic but super effective thing that we focus on is are you ha having a regular bowel movement and if not then how do you expect to take out the trash each day boom mic drop <laughs> Cardi B has so many different lyrics that I'm sure we could include whenever we're talking about, I don't know, the vaginal microbiome, the bucket enema. <laughs> I reckon we could keep going. Cardi anyway. beta glucuronidase. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Beta yes. I yeah. like that. And maybe we I should, should explain. Do a Cardi B episode what like xenoestrogens are. But, you know, again, this isn't this isn't a fear tactic sort of episode. It's not like everything you touch, you've got to be afraid of. It's more just saying what's within your control, you know, where possible drinking out of a reusable coffee cup instead of a, you know, a plastic coffee cup, being conscious of what chemicals and cleaning products you're using around your house. That's where we pick up those excess sort of chemicals that may have an impact on your, your hormone health. Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about gut dysfunction as well, that was another um, point that you had made. Yes, it can be tricky to get on gut symptoms if it's all driven by estrogen, but there's a lot that we can do simply through food that can help reduce bloating, regulate your bowel movements, support your microbiome so that you can get on top of inflammation and help excrete this excess estrogen. And what we find as well is that people will come in and they're like, they have such a restrictive diet because they're having gut symptoms. And so mm. they just cut things out and then they're left with, you know, a select sort of safe food. But we, in order to support gut dysfunction, there has to be diversity. And so when we're thinking of whether it be endo or whether it be common um, period pain, there's a few nutrients or, or foods that we sort of always go for. And that's going to be antioxidants from fruit and veggies. There's even research, I think it's a meta-analysis study showing that the introduction of more fruit improves period pain so you know i think something as simple as increasing um colorful fruits and veggies in your diet is is a really important factor there um 
green tea. What an amazing antioxidant, whether that be matcha. Do you drink it? Heck yeah, in the form of a matcha <laughs> latte with a bit of, a bit of honey. <laughs> um, but I don't mind a green tea if, like, made well on a. If I have to. <laughs> if, if, I, if I have to. But, yeah, I don't mind it. Um, no, matcha is much nicer and, like, way more potent, right, in terms yeah. of its antioxidant status. And more expensive. But either, either way, you know, like, yeah, and more expensive and more trendy. Like, it's all ticking all the boxes, very on brand. Fish oil or oily fish, salmon, mackerel. I love anchovies. Not many people do, but I would eat them out of the jar. Um, you know, they contain essential fatty acids, which reduce um, prostaglandins. So, you, you know, our bodies need these good fats. Uh, the other thing as well is fiber, fiber from quinoa, fiber from oats. They contain um, really good resistance starch, which supports your, your gut microbiome. I think too, when it comes to dietary recommendations for endometriosis or adenomyosis for that matter, um, it can be tricky because there's a lot of research coming out around different types of diets, you know, like following a low FODMAP diet or a low histamine diet or more of a Mediterranean diet. And it, it can be really overwhelming for someone that's just trying to get on top of their bloating or their period pain or whatever their predominant symptom or symptoms might be. But I think to make it really straightforward, it's like let's just get diversity to begin with. Let's get different colours of fruits and vegetables. Let's hit the fibre requirement. Let's stay hydrated. And then you can go from there and dig deeper if you need to. Yeah, and, you know, a big thing that we do talk about as well is for those people who are highly sensitive to, say, FODMAPs or histamine, then once we work out and, and do really well on the basics, then you can say, okay, so maybe that bone broth that you're having three cups a day of isn't actually serving your eczema or your period pain and let's swap it out for something else and, you know, make some different changes there um, mm -hmm. because people get comfortable with what they like and what they're used to and so you know there can always be optimizations where possible and histamine is interesting isn't it because things that are high so for people that don't know why we're talking about low histamine essentially what happens in the body is when estrogen increases it can bring histamine with it and vice versa and so what you can start experiencing is histamine intolerance whereby there's just too much histamine in the body your body can't get rid of it and so it comes out in symptoms and the symptoms could either be you know your classic histamine symptoms are like hay fever itchy eyes watery eyes sneezing wheezing itchy skin eczema like any Diarrhea. of those allergy yeah allergy type symptoms yeah it could be anything related to your gut bloating diarrhea nausea like feeling nauseous all the time um, or it can be anything related to estrogen, so heavy periods, painful periods. Um, and so what we can do with histamines is that if you tick, if you just go, yes, I have exactly all of those symptoms, then maybe it's time we look at how many histamines you're eating. You can always take an antihistamine. I mean, it depends on your medication. But the problem with uh, taking antihistamines is that although it blocks the receptor, as soon as you stop taking it, the problem's still there. It's kind of similar to taking the oral contraceptive pill, right? It's like kind of masks it for that 
that time. So instead, what you can do is go through food and lower foods that are high in histamine so that it lowers your histamine load in the body. Yeah, I say to my clients that imagine that you had a cup and that cup is your histamine tolerance and throughout the day you're slowly increasing that but as soon as you overflow it that's when you get symptoms. So food is going to be either histamine producing or histamine stimulating but then you've also got environmental factors here, mold, cats and dogs or animals, Mm -hmm. um, pollens in the air. And so, you know, you may have an influx of all of that, plus you're in your luteal phase when estrogen is really high and you're eating histamine food and, yeah, you you just, you're not dealing with that histamine um, tolerance. Mm, Absolutely. And it's interesting when you talk about foods that are high in histamine, um, for anyone listening who cares, um, Say you have a salad with spinach and avocado and tomato and you pop some sour, yeah, you pop some sauerkraut or kimchi on top. Every single one of those ingredients is high in histamine. And so what you thought was a nice, healthy, light salad was in fact making the whole situation potentially worse because it's just adding to your histamine load. So for that's some people, where it can get really confusing. For some people, absolutely. Yeah. Not everyone. And, you know, it goes back to our general recommendation of, okay, let's start with diversity. And then second step, if you feel you need to dig deeper, you know that we're here to support you through that because it can get quite restrictive. And the last thing you want is for this to turn into an unhealthy relationship with food because we can't figure it out. Can I go on a little bit of a tangent? Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting is that when we think about pregnancy, there is really high states of estrogen, especially, you know, in that first trimester, in that second trimester. And that is going to be closely correlated with morning sickness or that nausea that we're feeling. Medication specifically to treat morning sickness is surround or some some medication is antihistamine mm. is, a, is an it's antihistamine isn't it and so that's when you know you have that client who gets really nauseous in that mid luteal phase before their period you know that can potentially be a sign of histamine overload high estrogen all the rest and so you know n- nausea is typically treated from a, a medication perspective through antihistamines so how can we add a natural approach to that as well through dietary environmental modification yeah Absolutely. And maybe we should touch on supplements too, because we use supplements regularly to support our clients. Not everyone, it totally depends on the person sitting in front of us. And in fact, I had someone earlier today who was taking like, I don't know, 25 different supplements. And I was like, like well, you when you right, walk. stop this. Yeah. Like let's get, as of today, you're not taking anything. Let's regroup. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, no, good. you shouldn't feel any better. So, you know, it's like, what are we doing here? Let's get some testing. Let's figure out what's going on and let's get really therapeutic in our approach. But when it comes to endometriosis, adenomyosis, there certainly are some supplements that you can take to help manage symptoms, but it depends on your symptom picture, on the type, the form, the dose when in the day you take it, if you're taking any other medications or supplements. This Chloe, is you not... want to do your spill. Do your spill. Yeah, I'll do my spill. Okay, count me in. Give me a beat. No, 
Three, two, no. one. But what I guess what you're trying to say here as well is that this is not going to be a quick prescription run to the chemist and get these supplements. We need to get specific on dose. We need to get specific on form. And so for typical endo supplements that um, have some pretty good research around it is going to be vitamin D, which is actually, in fact, a hormone. Um, what they found in this uh, recent meta-analysis was that the vitamin D status of patients with endo has shown to be lower compared to control. Um, so people without endo. And so when, and, and this is also correlating with severity, the lower the vitamin D, the increase in severity of endo symptoms. And so whether that be a supplementation to rectify or, you know, naturally getting um, and improving your vitamin D levels, that's going to be a big player there. Now, that's some other things as well when we think about it that has some good research to supporting um, endo is going to be essential fatty acids from fish oils. Like I said, that helps to improve prostaglandins, which is um, that sort of protein that creates the, the pain um, in the uterus. Some uh, Another product is going to be curcumin. Curcumin is the active constituent found in turmeric, which is responsible for the color of turmeric. And so you need to make sure that the dose is specific. You need to make sure um, that the form is correct for you. And also making sure that you're not taking it when you have a specific nutritional deficiency because that can make it worse. Um, mm. And yeah, so, you know, this needs to be curated for you as an individual. Lastly, we, well, not lastly, but one that we sort of tend to use quite often is N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC. You love NAC, don't you, Georgia? I love NAC. I personally think that if I were to turn into a nutrient, I would turn into NAC. NAC's the precursor to glutathione. Glutathione's the biggest antioxidant in the body. Maybe I'd be glutathione, just like, you know. Oh, yeah, just go for the, the big front. dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I'm humble. I'll be NAC, okay? I'm humble. Um, but, yes, N-acetylcysteine is a powerful antioxidant. So when there's inflammation, when there's oxidative stress, we need antioxidants to help bring that oxidative stress back down and help reduce inflammation. There was a really interesting study done on N-acetylcysteine um, in a, a group of Italian women who had endometriosis. And they were taking NAC um, for, I think, maybe eight weeks or three months. And up to 50% of them ended up cancelling their laparoscopy because their endo lesions had improved. Reduced, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of benefit in this nutrient. Um, and this isn't the end of, you know, what we recommend. It, it really depends. But these are sort of like your main big hitters. Yeah. The the problem though with NAC that some people face is that because it can be quite detoxifying, you can get, de you know, detoxification symptoms like diarrhea, you can feel a bit sick in the tummy. But well, it's also sulfury. It's, it's I was going to say it's sulfur yeah. based. So if you also have sulfur sensitivity or, you know, there's a particular gene we look at when we do genetic testing that can tell us how well you can metabolize sulfur. Like there's lots of factors that come into play before we even consider supplements because the whole reason we do it is to be therapeutic. So we will only prescribe supplements when we know that it's absolutely appropriate for the person sitting in front of us. And so, okay, so that we're talking a lot about 
endo and adeno, but for if you're coming in with normal or common period pain, it responds really well to some basic nutrients such as zinc, calcium, magnesium. Um, those are sort of like the three minerals that we usually recommend. Magnesium and calcium, they're going to play a big role in supporting the contraction and relaxation. Rela relaxation. <laughs> I just made up a word. <laughs> I mean, just do it with confidence. No one will know. Yeah, anyway, I should have just carried on. Um, contraction and relaxation of smooth muscle and the uterus is made up of smooth muscle and so I say to my clients like you know if you're ever getting a cramp in your calf you don't just sit there and put a hot water bottle on it you move it around and you sort of help with the oxygenation flow and that's why research has found that exercise whilst on your period actually helps improve period pain because there may be a reduction in getting oxygen to that uterus is that is con contracting and relaxing I think you know that's so interesting because often it's the last thought for so many people oh, it's like I won't do oh, it. I'm menstruating but yeah <laughs> we just read the research we don't like never once oh, say I, that I, I recommend it. it but I'll be on that couch with a bit of chalky <laughs> no yes absolutely but even just like you know, it doesn't have to be something high intense. And in fact, exercise can be inflammatory in the moment. So sometimes you do too much and it can make things worse. But gentle Walk. movements, yeah. even stretching, walking, like whatever yeah. feels right for you. Um, but yeah, okay, well, hopefully there's some tips there that people can take to help manage their pain or at least determine whether the pain that they're experiencing might be normal and, you know, there's a few strategies we can put in place to help reduce it or manage it versus the type of pain that is not normal. And if it's stopping you in your day-to-day, -day, if you're vomiting or bent over, you know, in so much pain and you are relying on being bedridden for however long, maybe it's time that we dig a bit deeper and figure out what exactly is going on is there adenomyosis is there endometriosis what might be getting in the way and so for a little bit of story time for me through I've had painful periods from day dot from the time that I got my period I would I remember going to sick bay at school and them giving me um, like Panadol and then dad picking me up and us just having like a bit of a silent drive on the way home he's like yeah how was school I was like yeah, yeah good thanks um, <laughs> and you know it's hard because you're like 12 or 13 years old and you just feel like so hard to manage there's it's just embarrassing it's like I don't know what the hell I'm doing um I will get to go home from school and watch Ready Steady Cook. And <laughs> and Eve, so I went on the pill and that helped. I still had a little bit of period pain, but it came back after I um after I came off the pill. But for me, my period pain was only ever as soon as I started bleeding and it would go away within 24 hours. But it was intense. It was still intense. Um, and so I tried lots of different things, but, you know, potentially not the consistency. I didn't, I was trying, okay, I'll give that a go for a month. No, nope, didn't work. Try something new. So that's where I feel like I made a mistake there. And, you know, throughout that time, like in my early 20s, I was going out drinking. I was staying up late. I wasn't living that sort of, you know, I wasn't living that balance in terms of eating well and doing all those other things. And I think your point about 
yes, what happens in that previous month will for sure affect your hormones and the inflammation in the prostaglandin release, but also think anything that's happened in the last three and a half, four months. Like if we work with your egg maturation cycle, anything that's happened three and a half, four months ago could affect your cycle today. So that's where we really get our clients to think about, okay, well, what's been happening? Have I been under so much stress? And that's why this period pains come on out of nowhere. Or have I been drinking too much or partying a bit hard? Or what have I been doing that could be (laughs) tick that could be affecting the, the level of pain? And for me as well, I would have some months where I would have minimal period pain, some months where it was okay. But when we started trying to fall pregnant and it didn't happen for the first um, six or so months, and then when I experienced recurrent loss, I was like, I want to investigate endometriosis. I know how common it is and I still get period pain. And so I went in for a laparoscopy and um, I remember I, I almost convinced myself that I had it. I was like, yeah, I've got it. I'm an endo warrior. I was going to put it in my bio. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was like, that's me. That's my community. And then the surgeon came over to me after the surgery and he put his hand on my shoulder and he's like, okay, good news and bad news. You don't have endo. And I was like, well, what the fuck do I have then? Like where I don't mm-hmm. have a, now it's like, I don't have my endo community. I'm just like, you know, back to almost I've just square had one. Surgery. Yeah. I've just spent exactly. like six grand on surgery. So what's potentially contributing to this? Um, and whether this be a bit grim or not, but when I experienced my third loss and I was around nearly 10 weeks, it was very painful and I had to go to hospital. And um, but randomly since having that I haven't had period pain and I know some people say to me that after they've given birth their period pain reduces significantly so whether that be cervical dilation whether that you just don't know like there's so much to period pain um but that for me is my random correlation fascinating yeah Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, leave us a review and follow us on socials. We'd love to hear from you.